Before I begin, uh, I just want to, well, a month ago today, uh, I was on an oper operating room table having cancerous prostate removed. Uh, I'm amazed that I'm standing here today. I'm amazed at how my recovery has gone. And I attribute that to, I had a good doctor, first of all, but I have a great God. And I have a truly wonderful church who I know was uh, reached out throughout all that I went through. They were praying, visiting. Uh, I can't thank you all enough for that. Uh, I can't thank you for the love that you showed. And um, I'm just so grateful to be standing here before you today. Um, you'll be glad to know I'm not preaching on my prostate. But I do want to uh, open by sharing a little bit of, of my testimony, um, and, and I think you'll see the relevance to this. Um, in October of 2003, my wife and I were told that we were expecting our fifth child. Uh, we were jubilant. We celebrated. A few days later, her doctor discovered a lump in her breast. We were concerned, but we knew in our hearts that God would not put a baby in her womb and then allow her to be terminally ill. She had a biopsy. And we prayed for favorable results. And I will never forget the circumstances surrounding us finding out the results of that biopsy. Uh, Julie and I went to the doctor's office. Uh, we sat for, it seemed like forever, we, we, we sat in that waiting room. Um, and then the nurse came out and she asked us to follow us to the doctor's office. <clears throat> I held Julie's hand as we walked, uh, began to walk down that long hall to the doctor's office. And Julie was holding Jesse's hands with her other hand. He was maybe two and a half years old. And we had not gone too far down the hall when another nurse approached us and she suggested that she take Jesse outside to show him the ducks in the pond. <coughs> In that moment, we both knew that the results of her biopsy were not favorable. We didn't need to talk to the doctor to know that she had cancer. And friends, I want to tell you something. I had never in my whole life, up to that point, never since then, felt so distant from God as I did in that moment. So, this brings me to the question. What do we do? What do we do when God doesn't heal? How do we interpret the common experience of life when God does not relieve our pain, or at least he doesn't relieve it right now? <coughs> Let me switch gears. I want to approach this, from, uh, this question from a different angle. Have you ever wondered why so many Christians don't ever seem to, that, that they never seem to manifest real life change? You know, we watch people, they go to church, they, they pray when they're in crisis, they read their Bibles every so often, but there's no change in terms of real-life transformation. There's no change in the stuff below the surface. There's no change in the way that they relate when they put on their church face with each other. There's no change in the deeper issues of life, you know, becoming a kinder person, a more loving person, a more gracious person. There's no change in the stuff that spills out when the circumstances of life knock them over. Have you ever wondered why there seems to be so little 
radical life change in many Christians around us? Well, I believe that if we dig to the bottom of the issue, we discover that we Christians in America, that we have built our lives on the wrong foundation. Bottom line, the foundation for Christian lives in America is not the service of God or the love of God or the glorification of God. Bottom line, we in America have adapted Christianity into a religion for the service of ourselves. I heard a description once from, uh, of American Christianity, and it was stated in a very memorable way uh, by a missionary leader named Bob Shogren. Listen to what he said. He said, the problem with us in America is that the Bible was written for dogs, but it's read for cats. You see, a dog says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, therefore you must be God. A cat says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, therefore I must be God. <laughs> See, the problem of Christians in America, according to Bob Shogren, is that the Bible was written for dogs, but it's read by cats. And as cats, we read the Bible, and we think that the star of the Bible, well, it's me, when the real star of the Bible is God. You know, cats follow Christ when Christ helps them. Dogs follow Christ because Christ is true. Cats worship Christ because of what he's done for them. Dogs worship Christ because of who he is. Cats walk away from God when life is hard. Dogs get close to God when life is hard. Cats think that life is all about them and their happiness, while dogs realize that life is all about God and his glory. Today what I'm going to speak about is hardship, and I'm going to speak about where is God when life is hard, when you, when you aren't healed, when you don't see a breakthrough in prayer, when you are misunderstood or lied about, or when the pain doesn't go away. Well, where is God then? I'm going to talk about how to find God when life is hard. And I think my goal is an audacious one because what I hope to do today is to transform the foundation of your life so that we will begin to see that Christ does not exist to serve us, but that we exist to serve Christ. And that's why I've called this sermon today, Where is God When Life is Hard? Our text today is found in Psalm 73. Uh, for those of you who have the Pew Bible, that's between Psalm 72 and Psalm 74, okay? Good, you guys got that. Thank you. I'm glad you're listening. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for gathering us here. We thank you, Lord, for accepting our worship, for accepting the sacrifice of our praise. We pray, Lord, that you will... Uh, speak to us, that you will speak into our hearts, that you will uh, show us just how great you are, who you are, and show us what you are doing even as we, and, and when we suffer. Father, I pray this in your name for your glory, and in the name of your precious Son, Jesus, amen. So, our, our, our scripture today is found in the Psalms, and one of the great values of reading the Psalms 
is that we get to hear the feelings and the experience of people who have been through the very same things that we're going through. You know, the writers of the Psalms, they express feelings that we have. They express our anger, our frustration, our depression, our fears, and our doubts. I, I believe that the best part of the Bible to read when we are experiencing pain or hardship is the Psalms. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing to hear abstract teaching about a subject, but it's another thing to talk to a person who has gone through what we are going through. There's a, a, a fellowship that we find in suffering. There's an ability to communicate sympathy and wisdom that can only come from having personally been through the fire. And then it's like you have someone come alongside of you and they say, you know what, I understand your pain. I, I can empathize with you. I've been there. I've done that. You see, friends, knowing someone who has been on the same journey that you're on is profoundly helpful to us. Have you not seen this in your own life? You know, the, 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 the simple comfort that you get, uh, uh, that you receive in, in suffering when you meet a fellow sufferer. You know, I see this with parents who have lost a child. You know, there's, there's a grief and a depth of sadness that can only be understood by another parent who has had to bury one of their children. Likewise, I've, I've, I've seen this connection between people who are going through cancer. Uh, I've seen it with people who have overcome addiction, people who have been in prison, with women who have been raped. There are levels of comfort that we can receive only from someone who has walked in our shoes. You know, maybe it's because we feel, you know, we feel, you know, goodness, I, I, I'm not alone. Other people have experienced what I've experienced and they've made it through. There is, there's something that happens to us when we have another flesh and blood person who looks us in the eyes and says, I've been there, I understand, and you can get through this, you can end up even better. You know, there's, there's, there's nothing like sitting with a mature spiritual friend who completely understands your circumstances. And friends, this is what we find when we turn to the book of Psalms. You know, when you say, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this particular emotion, the psalmist understands. So today we're going to be looking at Psalm 73. Psalm 73, actually, it begins with good theology. It, it, it begins almost with the conclusion of the argument. You know, the psalmist is saying this. He's saying, here is the truth that I have been taught by the Bible. Here is the wisdom I have received from my teachers. So let's look at Psalm 73, 1. Let me show you what I mean. Psalm 73, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Isn't that a wonderful statement of theology, right? Surely God is good. God is good to his people Israel. God is good to anyone whose heart is not divided and who seeks him. Friends, that's good theology. Then what's the problem? Well, the problem is this. Life doesn't always look like it squares with that statement, does it? The problem is that we observe in the lives of other people. What we see in the lives of other people doesn't always square with this statement. The psalmist is going to address the very common experience that I think every human being has experienced at times when God does not seem to be good. The common experience at times that there seems to be you know, lots of exceptions 
to the sound theological concept that God is good. The psalmist says that he has looked at his life and he has looked at life around him and he almost fell into unbelief or, or at least into total despair. Let me show you verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Well, what causes this condition of his feet almost slipping and his faith nearly collapsing? The bottom line is his experience in the moment didn't square with what good theology taught him. You know, even though this man was trying his hardest to serve God, he wanted to be among those who were pure of heart, who God uh, uh, would be good to. He was trying to serve God and to please and obey God, but he wasn't experiencing God's blessing. Let's jump down to verses 13 and 14. He says, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. Now, the psalmist doesn't share with us the nature of his problem. You know, Maybe he had a chronic illness or a toothache or some pain that kept him up all night. Have you ever wrestled with God's goodness simply because of bodily pain? Lord, you say... You say you love me. The Bible says that, that you are good to those who all those who turn to you in faith. And I hear all of this teaching in church about healing. And it's nothing for you to stretch out your hand and to heal the slip disc in my back. It's nothing for you to take away the pain of this migraine or my kidney stone or my chronic stomach problems. Lord, you can heal my wife's cancer. Why don't you do that? Why wouldn't you do that? I mean, God, if I had a suffering child that I loved, and if I had the ability to heal them, I'd move heaven and earth to bring healing. You know, we don't know what the problem the psalmist had was, but, but maybe his problem was like continued financial stress. You know, he had a debt load, creditors hounding him, loss of property, and maybe he was going bankrupt. But picture it, he says, Lord... You say you own the cattle on a thousand hills, that you are generous, that you freely give your resources. And if you have resources, won't you bless me? Won't you lift me out of this debt? You know, maybe the problem involved a painful relationship, a difficult marriage, a loved one's illness, being misunderstood, being lied about being slandered, being persecuted for faith. Maybe the issue involved a child's rebellion or a spouse's infidelity. See, it doesn't matter what the problem is. The real issue we find here is in verse 13. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. But good theology teaches us, verse 1, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But my experience is verse 13. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. In other words... In other words, it doesn't seem to make any difference at all if I pray or not. It doesn't seem to make any difference if I obey or not. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt, why do I bother praying if God is not going to answer? What difference does it make if I'm trying to obey God, if I'm always going to get the short end of the stick? Be honest, have you ever felt that way? 
I mean, one of the things I love about this, I just love the psalmist's brutal honesty. In vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. You know, living in the 21st century, perhaps he would say something like this. You know, maybe the relativists are right. You know, maybe life is utterly random and it doesn't matter what you do, whether you follow God or rebel against God. It doesn't matter if you pray or if you don't pray, if you obey or disobey. It's all the same. Maybe there is no meaning. Maybe there is no ultimate reward in following Christ. Maybe life is not governed by a benevolent, sovereign Lord. But you know what? It's just a crapshoot. When your number's up, it's up, and you can do nothing about it. And, you see, and the psalmist's misery, it's compounded when he looks around him at the ungodly. He feels crushed as he looks at the corrupt, the people who never give God a passing thought. They're totally self-absorbed. And as the man looks at the arrogant, at the abuser, at the liar, the vulgar, the person who mocks Christianity and mocks the truth, here's what he sees. Verses 3 to 11, he says, For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains, there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here, and waters of a cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Can you see this? The psalmist describes this. The, you know, he does so well in describing this successful, ungodly person. You know, he's talking about the lewd professional athlete. The athlete who's sleeping with hundreds of women in hundreds of different cities. He has six kids and, and, and five, from five different women. And yet, in, the sports writers praise him to the sun. He's talking about the arrogant businessman who never plays by the rules. The man who lies and cheats and scams the public and he gets away with it. He's talking about the great looking, totally self-consumed, yet morally bankrupt Hollywood celebrity who people cheer at the Academy Awards as they walk down the red carpet. The psalmist is talking about the people you see in People Magazine or Extra. You know, they have great bodies, they're prosperous, they're popular, they're fawned over, celebrated, Photographed. All those folks with perfect teeth and perfect complexions. And he says, what gives, God? These folks spit in your face. They blaspheme you. They deny your knowledge. They deny your existence. They deny your judgment. They abuse your people. They hate your people. They make movies ridiculing your people. And yet you seem to bless them. The bottom line is this, this poor man doesn't understand what he sees. So in verse 16, he writes, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. And this is a really important point. I'm going to stop here for just a second. Um, 
you know, there's something that is found in this verse that you really must understand. The NIV puts the, this way. It says, when I tried to understand this, it was oppressive to me. And here's this really important point that I want you to grasp from verse 16. Okay, I want you to listen carefully. Friends, you are not sinning when you do not understand why you are experiencing what you are experiencing. That's not sin. You are not sinning when you do not understand God's ways concerning you or concerning those you see around you. You know, there are many people who feel like they're, they're failing, like they are immature Christians or they're not even Christians when they don't understand why God allowed something to happen to them. You know, some people feel like they are sinning when, the, when, when life leaves them confused. And what I want you to see here is this. This is the, the, this is the enemy's one-two punch, okay? The enemy says this. He says, look at you. Look at your situation. You pray and you pray, but God doesn't seem to answer. God doesn't seem to care that you're in continual pain. You know, sure, he promises that if you ask, it will be given to you. If you seek, you will find. And if you knock on the door, it will be open. But not in your case. See, the first thing that the enemy does is he tempts you to doubt God's goodness, his faithfulness, and his promises, at least for you. The enemy says God is not good. Or maybe he says maybe he's good to someone else. You know, maybe he's good to somebody in Asia or, 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 or somebody in Cleveland or maybe even Meadville. Maybe Christianity works for other people, but he whispers in your ear, Christianity doesn't work for you. Have you ever heard that voice, friend? I've heard it. Christianity doesn't work for you. Prayer doesn't work for you. God will not be faithful to his promises for you. You're always going to be single. You'll always be depressed. You'll always be sick. You'll always be what you are at this moment. And then, of course, the enemy exaggerates your pain. You know? He exaggerates the joy of other people. He gets you to be entirely obsessed with the problem so that your problem becomes the sum of your entire existence. He brings your problem so close to your face that you can't see anything else in life. And he whispers to you, there is no blessing in your life. There is no sign of God's favor. Anybody ever heard that? Anybody ever been there? Ask yourself this, though. If that's where you are right now, is it really true that there is no blessing on your life and that there's nothing and nowhere where your life has been blessed? I mean, if you have children, are your kids healthy? If you are a Christian, do you have fellowship? Do you receive teaching? Do you, friend, have a bed upon which you sleep? Are you able to walk? Did you eat today? Is it true that there is no blessing in your life? Do you in any way experience the goodness of God? And, and, and ask yourself this, are the ungodly <coughs> really so happy as it seems? I mean, why are so many Hollywood stars in drug and alcohol rehab if they're so happy? You know, if, if, if the wealthy, the super rich like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos are so happy, why are their marriages blowing up? Why are the families of the well-off often so dysfunctional? Has anybody here ever seen the Kardashians? Enough said, right? Enough said on that. You know, you know, when we are in pain, the enemy exaggerates our problems, and he also exaggerates the joy of others. But you know what? The enemy's not through. 
He's not done with that. He's a combination puncher. And once he staggers you with, with what you see, once he staggers you by exaggerating your problems or exaggerating the joy and the blessing that he tells you is on the lives of the ungodly, he hits you with a second punch. And he's, because the enemy's goal is to completely knock you down. And here's what the second punch is. On top of everything, on top of all of the unfairness that you experience, on all the unfairness that you see around you in life, he says, try as you might, you're never going to figure this out. You will always fail to understand. Look with me again at verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. I mean, here you are. You're trying to hear something from God. You're laboring to get some insight, some wisdom for your situation. But you keep going round and round in circles. You still have the same thoughts. The, the same, you reach the same conclusions. You have no breakthroughs in understanding. Well, let me offer you a little bit of comfort so that you can defend yourself from the second punch. And this is so important that I need to say it again. It is not a sin. And I would go further and say that it does not reflect upon your spirituality or your maturity if you don't understand what is happening to you. You know, there's a, 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 one of my favorite scriptures that I share uh, many times with others who are experiencing hardship and don't understand why. Um, as they struggle to know what God is up to, one of my favorite scriptures to share is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. And this is what we read. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. What does that mean? Well, you can be perplexed. You can say, I don't understand what is happening to me. I don't understand why it is happening to me. And realize this. Paul was perplexed. The psalmist was perplexed. Job was perplexed. But that doesn't mean that you are sinning by being perplexed. You don't need to despair. You can be perplexed but not in despair. You don't have to give up your faith or throw in the towel on prayer. I mean, think about this. Why do we think that we would ever understand everything that's happening to us in any given moment. I mean, the prophet Isaiah put it this way, uh, where he shares on God's perspective in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words... Here's what we're reading. God is God. He is infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, and infinitely huge. And he understands all of life. He controls all of history. How could we possibly completely fathom his designs? I mean, even if God told us what he was up to, many times we wouldn't understand or we wouldn't be able to receive it because of where we are in that moment. Friends, it's okay not to understand. The Bible tells us that because God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways, that we often won't understand what God is doing in our circumstances. 
You know, looking at life in the moment, and especially looking at your own hardship, and then looking around and watching other people enjoy life and failing to understand, we find ourselves in a really dangerous spiritual condition. The psalmist says it this way in verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had almost slipped. You know, see, he feels himself going down a very dangerous spiral. His condition is described in verse 21 and 22 of the NIV this way. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I don't think, I don't think that there is any spiritual condition that is more dangerous than having a bitter heart. And he says, my spirit was embittered. Hebrews 12, 15 warns us against allowing bitterness to grow in our hearts. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Why? Why is it so essential to protect yourself from bitterness when life is hard, when you feel like God is not responding to your prayers, when it seems like nothing you do makes a difference, when it seems like nothing anyone does makes a difference, and it seems like in the moment that it doesn't matter if you obey or disobey? See, in those seasons when you wonder, do the, the relativists have it right? Or, or, or does it matter whether I opt for truth or a lie? Or whether I opt for goodness or badness, kindness or, or meanness? In, in, in those seasons when you wonder, did the deist have it right? Maybe God just created the world and let it go. Maybe it's all up to us. Maybe God doesn't intervene. In those seasons of hardship and doubt and questioning your faith, why is it so important to guard your heart from bitterness so you don't fall into the condition of the psalmist in verses 21 and 22? Let's look at those verses. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Well, here's what I have discovered in in two decades of pastoring and nearly three decades of Christian leadership. When a person becomes bitter, almost any sin, almost any behavior, and I mean any sin and any behavior, becomes possible for them. The psalmist says that he started to act like an animal. He was like a brute beast. He was acting instinctually rather than thinking about his behavior. He was just reacting. And I've seen this over and over again. A person gets hurt. You know, maybe they're hurt by something the church does. Or or they begin to feel like uh, uh, life has treated them unfairly. They are hurt by another Christian, perhaps, or or even their their, their spouse. They they are hurt because they don't get what, what they feel they should have gotten. But they don't deal with the hurt. They don't give the hurt over to God, and and the wound is not cleansed, and they don't forgive. They get alienated by the church. They get cynical about the church. They get cynical about faith, and gradually a shadow grows over their hearts and over their relationship with God. And they experience hardship, and this root of bitterness grows inside of them. And the more that they allow the bitterness to grow and take control of their hearts, the more confused their thinking becomes. They're no longer thinking rationally. You know, if you argue with a person who's become bitter and you point out the facts, the psalmist says it would be like arguing with an animal. 
The bottom line of their thinking is this. I'm not getting what I think I deserve from my God or, 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 or from Christianity or from the church. God and the church didn't hold up their end of the bargain. I've been mistreated. Life has been unfair. So forget about God. Forget about the church. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to start looking out for number one. I'm going to start reacting by instinct and by my woundedness out of my bitterness. I'm going to look out for myself no matter what God says about it. And what happens is in this state of bitterness, friend, any sin, any behavior becomes possible. We can break marriage vows. We can, we can cut corners in business. We can react and fight fire with fire. We can get down in the mud and relate to those who have hurt us in the way that they're relating to us. I've seen people quit jobs. I've seen people leave their kids. I've seen people start using drugs, get drunk, visit prostitutes, go on spending sprees, have affairs. Anything is possible when you allow your heart to become bitter. Have you seen any bitterness growing in your heart towards God or toward the church? Is there any place where you've been hurt, where you've uh, reacted and said, well, if that's the way it is, I, I just don't want to play anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be like one of those kids who takes his bat and his ball and he says, you know what, I'm going home. I'm, I'm going to pull away from God. Are any of you far from God today? Are any of you far from the church? Because there's a wall of bitterness between you and God or between you and the church. I will tell you, Christians, that if you can trace other people's really insane, totally crazy behavior down to the root of their behavior, you will, always, you will almost always find the root of bitterness. When a person has been hurt and they have, a, 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 have not turned that hurt over to God and they have allowed their wound to become infected, almost inevitably their hearts become bitter. So... I guess the question is this, how do we escape that downward spiral? We, you know, how, do we, how do we avoid that bitterness? And we have to begin, the answer is this, we have to begin looking at life from a spiritual perspective. Verses 16 and 17. In verse 16 we read, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. But we find the answer in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. He said, I was spiraling down until I entered the sanctuary of God. Well, what do we learn in the sanctuary of God? In the psalmist's day, the sanctuary of God would have been the temple where the priests offered sacrifices and taught God's law. Today, the sanctuary would be the church where the gospel is clearly proclaimed, where Christ, his sinless life, his perfect death, and his glorious resurrection is preached. Today, the church is where scriptures are opened up and explained. And here is what you find in the sanctuary. You will find a spiritual meaning to life, a meaning you don't simply get by looking at your circumstances in the moment or by looking at the people around you or using your own reason and natural mind. Let me put it this way, okay? People are, 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 people are always asking the question about the meaning of life. You know, what's the meaning of life? What is the meaning of this event? What is the meaning in this tragedy, this hardship, this death, this rebellion, the, the meaning in this trial I'm experiencing? Well, friend, here's what I want you to see. 
You do not discover meaning by analyzing life, by dissecting it, by scrutinizing it, by studying it. Meaning will elude you if you try to discover it from analyzing life. Verse 16 will be your experience. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. The author of the book of Ecclesiastes analyzed all of life seeking meaning. Listen to his conclusions. He describes them in 1 Ecclesiastes, verses 12 through 14. Listen to this. He says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart, he says, to seek and search out wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. And I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And listen to his conclusion. This is what he found when he analyzed life. All is vanity and grasping for the wind. You do not get meaning by analyzing life. Rather, what you do is this. You bring You bring meaning to life. And this is spiritual thinking. You come at life with having discovered meaning. And you find meaning in the sanctuary. And as you listen and learn God's word and scripture, you discover meaning. And having discovered the meaning in the scripture, you apply that meaning to life. You come at life saying, Here's what God says about my circumstances. Here's how God wants me to look at what I'm going through. Let me show you how this works. So what is the meaning of a Christian being beaten or jailed? (coughs) You look at a godly Christian who is beaten for their faith and you say, what is the meaning of this event? You you, you, You dissect it, you study it, you analyze it. You know, you spin the event around. You look at it from every side. You look at it on all sides. You know, and and, and you could see this suffering with, with your natural reason. And you conclude that it doesn't matter if you love God or if you hate him. It doesn't matter if you pray or don't pray. It doesn't matter if you are obedient or disobedient. Friend, that's what happens when you look at life's events and you analyze them. You use your own reason. You don't discover meaning from life. You bring meaning to life. And let me show you what that looks like. We read in the Bible about the apostles. They had gone to the sanctuary. They had heard the Lord teach. They studied the scriptures. And because of those experiences, they brought a spiritual understanding to their suffering. You know, Jesus frequently spoke about, uh, uh, to, about the to the disciples about suffering. For example, Matthew 5.10, where he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, with this understanding, when facing persecution, we find the apostles rejoicing every time they are persecuted in the book of Acts. When they are beaten and they are threatened and thrown in jail, they said to themselves, finally, God thinks so much of us that he is associating us with his son Jesus. Finally, the world thinks of us the way it thought of Jesus. We've made it. They celebrated. They rejoiced because they brought meaning to the circumstances. They didn't search for meaning in these circumstances. So in Acts 5.40, we read this. And they agreed with him when they had called for the apostles and beaten them. 
they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they, the apostles, departed from the presence of the council. And look at what they did. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They brought meaning to this. They brought meaning to life through their persecution and their hardship. And the meaning that they brought was derived from Scripture as it was taught in the sanctuary. Well, what else rescued the psalmist from falling? We read that he looked at the end of life and he sought God's perspective. He stopped simply looking at a snapshot of life, at life in the moment, and he looked at the end of life. So in verse 17 and 18 we read, Till I entered the sanctuary of God and I understood, here it is, their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. See, what we're reading about is this. Instead of looking at a snapshot of life, at life in the moment, um, the psalmist begins to consider life from a spiritual vantage point, from the vantage point of the future, from the vantage point of the end. And he says, let me consider, let me consider for a moment a, a, a different view. Not what I'm experiencing right now, but let me just roll this film of my life forward 20 years, 30 years, into old age. Let me roll, roll the film forward all the way to death. And let, then let me roll the film beyond death to judgment. What will I have if I continue on this road that I am on with you, dear Lord? What will I have? And what will they have if they continue on the road that they're on without you? Friend, do you ever stop looking at life with your natural reason? Do you ever stop looking at life in just the moment? Do you look ahead, not just today or a week, but do you look ahead to the end? This is spiritual thinking to consider the consequences of life lived in rebellion to God or the consequences of life lived in obedience to and surrender to God. You know, this is a point where, 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 where Christianity and secular psychology totally differ in their orientation. <coughs> Excuse me. Secular psychology says that you discover the meaning of life by looking backward. You know, you consider what kind of home someone was raised in, what traumas they experienced as children, you know, what their mother was like or what their father was like. Secular psychology is always looking back, looking to the past to figure out the meaning of life. But spiritual thinking, discovered in the Bible, always tells us to look forward to the future. You know, it's not that we never look back, but you want to, if you want to really figure out someone's life, to find out what road they're on, to find out what their destiny is, you know, not what their past is, you look to the future. What's the end of their life going to be like? What road are they on? Let me make it more personal. What road are you on? Think about your life all the way to the end. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13, he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So I ask you, what road are you on? 
Are you on the broad road, the easy road, the, the popular road, the road that everyone else is walking on? Or are you on the narrow road, the hard road, the unpopular road? Are you walking with Christ? Are you living for Christ? Are you submitting yourself to Christ? Which road are you on? If you consider the way you are going, if you consider what you are doing, if you extend out the consequences of the activity of your life now, where is it going to end? Where will you end up? Do you like the road you're on? Do you need to change directions? Do you need to take the next fork in the road and go a different way? Would some of you say, if I continue on this road, it's going to lead to my own destruction? Friends, it's a, there's no question that is more important than this. What road are you on? What road are you on for eternity? And finally, there's one more point. Spiritual thinking understands that hardship is designed ultimately to reveal what is of supreme importance in our lives. Turn with me to verses 23 through 25. Nevertheless, I am continually continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. I mean, here's what we're finding. We, here's what we see. We see a man who is truly converted. You know, his problem in life was he didn't think that God was giving him what he deserved. He struggled because he felt he was being cheated. Because even though he was seeking God, he wasn't receiving blessing from God. But now his mind has been converted as he went into the sanctuary and soaked in scriptures. And his mind was converted and he saw the destinies and the ends of people. And he began to discover how satisfying God was just by himself. And it caused him to make this astounding statement. This is truly an astounding statement. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth is, has nothing I desire besides you. Literally, earth has nothing I delight in besides you. That's what he's saying. He's saying, dear God, I used to be so angry because you didn't give me what I wanted. But now, after experiencing this hardship, the only thing I want is you. I don't love you anymore because of what you give me. I love you because I love you. I don't love you because of your blessing. I love you because of who you are. I don't pursue you anymore like a cat who asks, what am I getting out of this deal? I pursue you like a faithful dog who looks at you and adores you and is longing for the day when his life will pass and I will be able to see you face to face. There's nothing else I desire, God, other than you. Friends, that is the real goal of Christian life. And that's where God wants to take you. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we are so grateful. Although none of us have, uh, would ask for hardship, none of us would ask for persecution or ask for sickness. Or, Father, we are so grateful that when we're experiencing those things, we do so knowing that you have purpose, that you have not left us, that you are drawing us close to you, that you are revealing yourself to us. I pray, Lord, for any of us, for all of us, as we 
deal with the difficult things in our lives, that you make that truth more real, that you show us who you are, you show us the meaning that we can find, you give us the words to apply to our situations. And Father, I pray for all of my brothers and sisters here that you give us the heart where there is nothing that I desire, nothing that we desire, God, other than you. Father, I pray for you to bless us as we go out from this place and use us to bless others. And I pray this in your name, for your glory, in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen.